Welcome to a very special edition of the Empathetic Witness podcast. Just before we begin, the content of this podcast will deal with residential school experiences, uh, trauma, and may well trigger reactions in persons who have in their own lives suffered trauma. So if you are such a person, please take care as you listen to this podcast. Now, you may have noticed, this is not the voice of your hostess, Angelina Pratt. I am, in fact, a guest interviewer today. My name is Alan Pratt. Now, that's not a coincidence, because I am the husband and best friend of the host of your podcast, Angelina. And today I have the very great privilege of interviewing her on matters related to residential schools trauma, reconciliation, and and other topics that may come up during the course of our talk. Myself, I should just say a couple of words, that I am uh, a Scottish-Canadian. I was born in Scotland, uh, came to Canada at the age of 10 with my family, uh, yada, 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 ended up being a lawyer, and at the age of 31 or 32, landed in the world of First Nations uh, uh, through my law firm. And I have to say, and I'm not proud to say this, that at that point in my life, I knew next to nothing about First Nations. Uh, And I say this because as someone who has lived in the First Nation world, so to speak, as an advisor, negotiator, counsel for the last nearly 40 years, I have to remind myself very often that the average Canadian knows next to nothing about First Nations. And what they do know, they've learned from headlines. Headlines are very useful sources of information, but they never tell you anything good. So with that in mind, um, I want to say that as a a new Canadian, um, I've dedicated my own life to fixing what I think is the single greatest flaw in Canada, and that is the situation of First Nations. And I was extremely lucky back in 1992 to meet the person that I now share my life with, Angelina Pratt, and I will now turn this over to her so that she can tell you her story. I'm going to ask you, I'm going to ask you, Angelina, a number of questions. I know the answer to many of them, but I think your listeners uh, need, need to know who it is who is guiding them through this journey, uh, through this podcast, and your other uh, your other searches for meaning. And when I say that, I'm thinking of <clears throat> your interest in wellness, nutrition, Buddhism, um, reconciliation, harmony, and many other things that have certainly enriched my life and that are the core of our life together as a family. So first of all, why don't you tell us where you're from? Thank you, Alan. That was a really nice introduction. Um, I am from, I was born in Uranium City, one of 16 children. I was raised with 10 brothers and five sisters. And the interesting part of the way I was raised is that my mother was a child bride in an arranged marriage, which was the Dene culture at the time. So in a nutshell, that's who I am. I'm Dene, and I am from a large family. And those are the things that represent and make up who I am. Well, I remember when your mother visited us, your late mother, um, about 20-some years ago, she talked about how she still felt about being married off in an arranged marriage. And first of all, remind me what the how old she was at that time. Well, at the time, she was around 14 years old. My father was in his 20s, probably 24, 25. And in, back in the day, that was the age that people got married. And my mother was given to my father because he demonstrated to 
my grandfather that he was a compassionate man, a trapper, a skilled trapper and hunter, and would be able to provide for his daughter. Now, you've told me about him. I didn't have a chance to know him, but I understand that he was not a religious man in the conventional sense. Yes, my father was not. My mom was a, a devout Catholic, and she pretty much told my father to walk us to church every Sunday, and he would do that. He would escort us to church, deliver us to the front door, and then he would go back home. Yeah. <laughs> so <laughs> he was a traditional Dene man, strong, silent type. He didn't really, he wasn't a talkative man, but he told amazing stories. Yeah, I'm sorry I didn't know him. Um, I've met people like that, and I, I can fill in the gaps. So I understand that sometime in your childhood, the whole family relocated to Fort Chipron in <laughs> Alberta. Can you tell me about that? Well, I don't really remember it because I was quite young, um, probably two years old or one years old. Like, I don't remember it at all, but we took a barge from Uranium City to Fort Chippewan, and we were met at the docks by the Indian agent. Mm-hmm. And that's all I remember. <laughs> but you do remember growing up in a small cabin, I, I think. I have some bits and pieces of memory of, of the cabin. I remember, you know, I have I have a memory of the wood stove, and I have memory of the the wood floors, and so I do have some memory. And I and one of the memories I have is sitting by one of the windows, and it it had a a heavy plastic. I guess it must have been broken at one time and was repaired with plastic. So I remember the plastic. And there was a little transistor radio next to the the window. And I remember listening to Louis Armstrong's Hello, Dolly. <laughs> and I, I remember my sister, Dora, said, that was your favorite song. And you would light up whenever that song came on. So, yeah, I do remember. I have memory of the cabin for sure. Now, at, at home, what language did the family speak? We spoke, my parents spoke Dene, and we children answered in English. And I think that was pretty much, um, I guess, the the norm. You know, as as the children were becoming educated, they would reply to their parents in English. So my mom could speak English, but she refused to. Mm-hmm. And she always spoke Dene. Yes, I know. Um, when I met her, she did understand some of my jokes. <laughs> 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 and she laughed quite appropriately. Um, so, no, um, in Fort Chippewan, uh, there was a residential school that you attended, mm. uh, along with members of your family, right? Yes, yes, that's absolutely right. It was called Holy Angels Residence. And I would assume most people that attended Holy Angels would think there was nothing holy or angelic about the residential school. Okay, so this is getting into the heart of we're going to spend some time on. Uh, so the school, unlike a lot of residential schools, uh, are far away from the communities and children are sent a long distance away. Now, you didn't quite have that experience because the school was in your community, right? Yes, yes, that's absolutely true. And it was approximately 20 minutes from our house. Is that walking? Yeah, walking. Okay. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) I assumed as a little kid you weren't driving. No, no. Um, So um, tell me, uh, first of all, just tell me your general memories of, of Holy Angels. All right. I want to begin, though, by my first day. My first day at Holy Angels was in December. And I remember my sister Dora saying to me, do you want to go to the mission? And of course, I knew nothing about the mission. I just knew my brothers and sisters were there. And I knew that my sister Dora worked there as a cook. So she says, you're a big girl now. Do you want to go to the mission? 
And of course, I was so excited. I thought, yeah, I want to go. She said, okay, get your, your, your snowsuit on and let's go. <laughs> so I quickly put on my snowsuit and we, we started out and it's winter and it was starting to get dark because I think it was after supper. So it, it was already dark, but the moon was out. It was pretty bright. No, you'd have, no, just stop you there. You're pretty far north. So the sun would be setting early in the, in the day relatively. So yes, yes, that's okay. correct. So that's it was around, <laughs> you know, four thirty, five o'clock. So it was getting dark already. It was getting pretty dark because it was getting, it was, uh, winter. Mm-hmm. So we started walking and, you know, I'm going as quick as my little legs could take me, but I started feeling the, the cold, the, it was biting on my face and my fingers, my little fingers were getting cold. And so I, I formed a fist so that all my fingers could be warm. And my sister was holding my other hand and we walked to the, to the mission and seemed like both forever and not that long. And so before I knew it, we were there. And this is, you know, I'm still really excited. I don't know what the mission is about. So we get into the, what they call the little girl's room, but it was really quiet. So I thought, where are all the girls? They're not here. The nun, Sister Plant, came in. She was a tall, slender nun, and she was dressed in full habit, you know, so with the, the veil and the long dress, black and white, and she had a cross. And she said to me, we were expecting you. And I thought, what? How did she know I was going to come? Because I didn't even know I was going to be going there. And so she she disappeared into her office and she came back and she was holding a pair of boots. And she said, these are your boots. And they're special because they'll glow in the dark. And I was really excited. I thought, holy moly, I'm going to get special boots and they glow in the dark. So this was my introduction. So off I went. Um, and when I got in to, out into the playground, my sister Rose, who is older than I am, already a senior in, a senior girl in the residential school, because they were, we were separated into boys, girls, seniors, juniors. She was already there and she came and greeted me with a sled and another girl. And she says, this is my baby sister. And I'm so excited. And the girl, I can't remember her name, but she had dry meat. And she said... Can you explain for non-Denny people what that is? Well, dry meat is, you know, could be moose meat, caribou meat. I think it was caribou. I'm not sure. And it the meat is dried in the summertime. And so it's like, I think people... Non-indigenous people will call it jerky. Jerky, yeah, yeah. something but, like that. But to a Dene kid, that's like candy, right? It's like candy, and it's <laughs> like special. So I felt really special, and they, she gave me that dry meat, and I thought this is really great. I got a pair of glowing boots, <laughs> and I got dry meat. You know, this is good. So, um, and then they pulled me around in the sled. So that was my introduction to the mission, and on all accounts, the first. You know, hour or so, it's pretty positive so far. Okay, and um, so now let, let's talk a little bit about your family. You're, you have, well, obviously you have, uh, have an enormous family by most people's uh, standards. Your sister worked there as a cook. So did she just come in every day to cook and live oh, yeah. at home? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And how many of your siblings would have been at the school while you were there? Well, I think, um, well, there is my sister, Rose, um, my niece, Donna, my... Now, Donna was brought up almost as a sister to you yes. as well, right? Well, she's a sister. She's Dora's daughter. And but she was about your age. Well, like, she's older than Older me. than you, yeah. Yeah, but oh. she's, you know, like a sister. I'm her aunt, but she's older than me. <laughs> so... Um, and then there's, you know, some of my brothers, there's Roger, Rossi, Ronnie, um, I think the older brothers, you know, Jimmy, Peter, Billy weren't there at the time. Mm-hmm. But they had, had they all gone to residential school before you? 
Not all of them, Not no, of them. because okay. they were older, and I, I don't really know why, but they didn't all attend mm-hmm. residential school. Mm-hmm. All right, so so you've, we've got through your first day. Mm-hmm. So just give me your impressions of, <clears throat> well, first of all, how long were you at Holy Angels? I was there until I was um, 12. Okay, I forgot to ask you how old you were when you that first day, how old do you think you were? Well, I I think I was seven because my birthday's in December, so I think I was seven years old. Okay. Because also, too, you know, Holy Angels Residence, the school that we attended was Bishop Pichet, which was separate from Holy Angels, so we had to walk to Bishop Pichet. And in my first week at Bishop Pichet, I was put into grade two because... Uh, I knew everything. <laughs> you, were, you were always you were always very smart. Um, so so there were really two two entities, two buildings. Yes. One was so when we think of residential school, we tend certainly I th- tend to think of a single building with residential quarters for the students and and classrooms all in one all in one place. But you had two separate two separate institutions. One was the residence, and one was the school. Is that right? That's correct. Okay. Yes. And at the school, I think you've told me in the past that it not they weren't all residential school um, uh, Indian kids That's at the correct. school. It was sort of a school with a mixed uh, population. Yes. Okay. Yeah, because Fort Chippewan is a hamlet, so they, you have indigenous peoples, you have Cree, you have Dene, and you have non-indigenous people. And in the mission, we call them extras. Extras. Yeah. <laughs> That's a good one. Yeah. <laughs> I'm sure they didn't think of themselves as extras. But. Yeah. <laughs> so now the, you mentioned the nuns. Uh, the nuns were the nuns in charge of both the school and the residence. Well, I think the church was in, in charge of both the school and the residence. Um, the this is the Catholic Church. It's the Catholic say. Church. Yeah. yeah, and so our principal originally was Sister Brady. Um, and some of our teachers were, were nuns, mm-hmm. but that changed over the years. By the time I left, there were, there were other, um, teachers and principal that were not nuns. Mm-hmm. Okay. So let's first of all talk about life in the Holy Angels residence, and then we'll get to the school, what, what your education was like. So in, in the Holy Angels, just maybe, you, you, you talked a little bit about the division between juniors and seniors and boys and girls and so on. Mm-hmm. So uh, you slept in a, what, a large dorm? Yes. Was it? Yeah, it was a huge dorm. Huge dorm. With how many kids would you say? I think in the junior girls' room, there were, I mean, the number I got was 44. Mm-hmm. So I would, I would guess that there was at least 44 students. Okay. Yeah. And um, did you have, did you, were you aware of any, I'm going to get to the subject of abuses and alleged abuses in due course, but I just want to get a sense of the, the day-to-day routine. So tell me about your day, your typical day. So the typical day is, you know, you, you get up, we have breakfast, and then we get ready for school, and then we go to school. And, and the school was how far away? It was a two-minute walk, maybe oh. 500 feet from okay. the residence. So you'd, you'd get up and you'd, um, with with all the junior girls, mm-hmm. did you ever make it to the seniors? No. So you're a junior girl throughout this whole thing. Yes. And, uh, so you'd get up and, uh, and presumably the nuns would wake you up. and yeah. uh, uh, Were they nice about it? Yeah, well, it, I mean, it is interesting. <laughs> the nun, I remember... Every year for the first day of school, I mean, the first day of snow, Sister Plant would wake us up with the, you know, she had a record player and she would play a song. It was called, I don't know what it was called, but it was something that went, hey, hey, snowflake, my pretty little snowflake. And I remember (laughs) that song. So everybody was so excited because we knew it was snowing. (laughs) So then you'd make your way to the school and then there were different nuns or teachers there. Yeah, like I said, you know, Sister Brady was uh, um, one of the nuns that taught. I think she was the principal for a while. And we had other nuns that taught religious studies. Okay. 
And I understand that your favorite reading material became... <laughs> why don't you tell us about what you became uh, very fond of reading? Well, I was all, I've always been curious and avid reader. So I started in the library. They had Nancy Drew books. And so I started on the mysteries of Nancy Drew. And then when I got through those, then I started reading Christian martyr stories. <laughs> so those are really fascinating to me because people were giving up their life for a for the religion. So you were you were quite, quite devout. You took after your mother at that time. Yes, in, I in did. In terms of being devout. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So you didn't... But you knew your father wasn't a devout Catholic, but I think you respected him a great deal as well. Yeah, and I didn't give it any thought. Like, mm -hmm. I really didn't give any thought to the the religious nature of the the building or the 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 culture or whether my dad was devout or, or not i just i was just a kid i didn't think about those things mm -hmm. a lot of us are like that <laughs> yeah. i think just about all of us are like that so um now tell me let's talk about some of your uh no you're talking uh, we, we've actually uh, had a visitor uh, here at our home uh, who was Father Musso, who was the principal of... Was he the principal of the school, or did he run the mission? No, he was... I don't know what they call them in the Oblate uh, order, but he was he was in charge of... Uh, of uh, he, I guess he was high up in the, in the church. Mm-hmm. But he was uh, someone who was uh, important in your life, I think. Yes. Um, yeah. Why don't you explain sort of his, you know, his approach and his influence at yeah. that school? Well, you know, Father Mosso uh, was a um, a he young was, man. He was from France originally. I yes. Think. Yes. Yeah. Uh, no, actually, he wasn't. He was he oh. was from Montreal. Oh, okay. Because there was another priest, Father Queff. He was from France, and I also had a nice relationship with him as well. And he went back to France, I think. Yes, he did. Yeah. yeah. Um, but Father Mosso, you know, being a young man, and he was he was uh, really open-minded, I think. You know, around that time in the, you know, mid-60s, early 70s, was um, a time when, when music was, I guess, Beatles were were really big then, and Father Mosso used to play Beatles songs on the microphone, uh, the gramophone, or the in the yard, and it, we could hear it all over. Um, and he, it was also around the time of um, Vatican II, so things in the church were changing a bit, you know. So it was almost overnight, and the nuns' habits were changing. Literally and figuratively, <laughs> I mean, because their actual habits were changing. So oh, they... their habits as clothes and their habits as behavior. Yes, okay. exactly. Okay. Yeah. 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 I see what you mean. Yeah. And so they were wearing, like, they didn't have to wear a veil anymore. They were wearing, you know, their skirts were shorter up to their knees. And it was just, it seemed more relaxed. And I think Father Moso kind of spearheaded that change. Mm-hmm. I understand that they used to show you scary movies. Oh, my God. I had nightmares for years and years because <laughs> Sunday night we had movie night. And I, for whatever reason, he was showing Alfred Hitchcock movies. So I saw, you know, like The Birds. And the one that gave me nightmares forever was Narnia? M Marnie. Marnie. Yeah. Marnie. And so I would for every dream about red coats and somebody banging on the window. And I never knew where that came from until <laughs> after I was married and I was telling Alan about it. Do you remember? I was saying. I do. <laughs> and I remember that same movie because I had the same reaction to it. I mean, I remember I saw it in Toronto when I was living there in a double, in a bill with the birds. <laughs> birds and then Marnie. And, and, uh, the birds are scary enough because they have the scenes of, uh, birds pecking eyes out and all that kind yeah. of thing. But Marnie made a, made an impact on me too. Yeah. It stuck with me for some reason. And so when you were describing your reaction, I got it <laughs> and I knew what movie it was. Yeah. And so I watched it again and 
And then I realized it wasn't as scary as to give me nightmares for years, but I watched it again. And it's just kind of like when you face your fears, then you re and of course, you know, when you're a child, things are, are scarier than when you get older and you realize it's just a show. So let me just comment. You're, you're describing a fairly well, and, for, and, and you got to go home on Sundays, right? Yes. Because you were in the community and yeah. So it's it's not like your parents didn't see you for months and on end. Um, uh, so you're describing a fairly, um, you know, a relatively typical, nice uh, childhood in in this school environment. Mm -hmm. um, but you knew at some point you knew that there was a darker thing going on. Um, your brothers, especially, uh, some of them had uh, had very difficult experiences there in that very same place so mm -hmm. what what do you feel like telling telling me about that well i mean i th i think again when you're younger you really have no idea of the dark side of things but i do remember you know a little bit of whispering of a certain brother that fixed bikes and of course anytime you get a, a scary description of somebody it had to be that he was in the basement, right? So they'd say, oh, you know, if you take your bike to this brother, like this brother is really strange. I don't, but as a child, I never knew what that meant. Mm -hmm. But later, years later, then I realized he was one of the brothers that were abusing some of the boys. So so tell me about the brothers. Who, where, where do they fit in this scheme? Well, the brothers are helpers to the priests. So they're not they're like not they're priests. lay people. They're yeah. lay people, but yeah. they they're 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 affiliated with the church. Were yes. they you know were they required to be celibate and that kind of thing, like the priests? Do you know? I have no idea. I no. don't think so. But mm -hmm. they seem like as a child, they I don't know if they look like <laughs> they they don't have families. But I don't know if they went home and and had a family. Mm -hmm. No, I have no idea. So there was whispering about you don't go down to the brother with your bike <laughs> and uh, come back uh, whole, I guess. Yes. Now, um, I know, I, I know uh, some of your brothers and and one in particular that you're very close. You were very close to mm. the late Rossi, mm. and um, I would say, you know, he became a very good friend of mine. But he was he was a. He was a man whose life had been uh, really ruined by his experience in that same environment. Yes. Uh, I don't know if you can speak about that. It's uh, it's a very, very sad story, but mm. it's it's a dark side that I think we need to acknowledge. Yes, it was. Yeah, Rossi and I were really close. You know, he was almost like a twin to me because we were, you know, just a little over almost two years old between the two of us and he was deeply deeply scarred by his experience in holy angels and it um it wrecked his life it yeah. wrecked his life absolutely mm -hmm. so while you were having this i mean i i can i can picture you as a young child and i i can tell you that you were extremely cute and you had people looking out for you and uh and and also, I I think um, I'm sure you were a very obedient kid. Never never acted out. Yeah. Or maybe you did. Well, <laughs> <laughs> I'll tell you another story. Um, this was I think I was ten years old. Sister Plant was was uh, telling us something. The the girls an announcement of some sort, and she was standing in front of her desk talking to us, and. She farted, and I burst out laughing. And I was standing next to her, and I laughed because I had no ideas that nuns farted. Like I, to me, it was just I couldn't believe it. And she slapped me across the face, and and I remember it's it's it shocked me and hurt. Mm -hmm. But the girls were all laughing, so then I just. I just thought, okay, this was funny. But yeah, no, on the whole, though, I'm a good girl. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, 
So uh, at the time when you were there, were, were you aware at all of, of the difficulties that some of your brothers were, were having? I think I was totally oblivious to it. Yeah. I had no idea. Do you think that, well, I don't know if this is a fair question, but do you think your parents were aware that their, their sons were having... No, I don't, think, I don't think they were aware, and I haven't spoken to this about, about this with my sister Dora that worked in the, mm. uh, as the cook. I don't even think she was aware. Right. And she worked there. Okay. Now, this was, to put this in a kind of a historical context, this was quite late in the uh, history of the whole residential school um, period. Mm-hmm. Um, probably close to the end of it, right? Yes. So, yeah. um, I think your experience, uh, everybody's experience is always going to be different, but you're, you're now aware that, um, in, in past times there are, you know, and what's come out from truth and reconciliation and so on, there, there have been truly horrific experiences in residential schools. Mm-hmm. So what, what, what do you say about that? Well, I mean... I think as an adult now, I and I and I kind of look to my late brother Rossi f- for this example. Is it's like there's dark secrets behind the laughter and the smiles of the children from residential schools. Because if you know my brother Rossi, he was funny, right? Very funny. Like he was funny. <laughs> he was laughing. He was. I mean, I remember one time we were. When he came to visit me for the first time when I moved to Ottawa, you know, he loved to go on a drive. So he was my navigator and he'd have a map and and he would tell me, he'd give me directions of where we were going. And so we were starting out and he says, well, we should have something to eat. So we pulled over to a, a roadside trucker, I guess it's a truck stop. And we went in. And then it was full. It was packed full. And he says, oh, let's go sit there. Let's let's ask those people if we can join them. So he was like that. He was mm-hmm. impromptu, and nobody would say no to him. So we mm-hmm. went up, and he said, hi, can we, can we join you guys? And they said, okay. <laughs> so, <laughs> so he was just like that. But, but, you know, back to your question, and Rossi had, like I said, he had a terrible experience there and he masked it, I think, with humor. Mm-hmm. And also he masked it with addiction. Well, as I said, I got to know him very well. Um, he visited us more than any other member of your family, probably. And um, I certainly spent more time with him. And I I agree with everything you say. I mean, he he was a wonderful, sweet man. Um, he he would do anything for. I mean, when uh, he would come and help out at the drop of a hat if we asked him to. Mm. Um, and I remember, I remember he did get a settlement uh, from the uh, residential school process, uh, and it was over a hundred thousand. And I remember he came to visit us, and we took him to New York City. He'd always wanted to go to New York City, and I think. In some ways, that little trip, which was just a weekend, was almost the highlight of his life. And I can remember him in the streets of New York running around and telling total strangers that he's got $100,000 to spend. (laughs) No, you don't do that. You don't do that. And and I remember we were talking about all the great plans that he had to travel. He wanted to buy a vintage car. And then it ended up, um, that money got pissed away mm. and um and he didn't make it much beyond that time he ended up in a fight and suffered a brain injury and and i think the whole thing that i took from it was that that beautiful the beautiful little boy that he was 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 actually ruined by whatever happened in that school and the attempt to compensate him ended up making his life worse probably Mm-hmm. And and it sort of makes you wonder what can you do for people who are harmed so deeply in childhood. Mm-hmm. Yes, I th- I think you're right. I think the trip to New York was a highlight for him. The irony was he wasn't able to get 
access to that money. <laughs> yeah, I remember. <laughs> he couldn't, he, his card wouldn't work in the ATM machines. And so, uh, yeah, that's right. <laughs> so, I mean, I, one of the things he wanted to do was to go for a helicopter ride. And he, he, he wanted to treat us for a helicopter ride, a scenic ride in the helicopter. But when he tried his card, nope. It didn't work. Yeah. So, I mean, even before we went to, to New York, we were driving, um, and we got to the border and I, um, like I was really afraid because I knew if he started drinking in New York, I might lose him. Mm -hmm. Like he'd get lost in the city. I didn't know what would happen to him. And so I was hoping you know, when we went through the border that we would get turned back. And so, because he didn't have a passport. And so he presented his Indian status card. The um, border border agent looked at it and said, okay, you guys have a good time. Mm -hmm. And he looked at me and he started laughing and he said, I bet you thought we would get turned back. <laughs> I said, no, I was hoping we would get turned back. <laughs> But but we didn't. We ended up having a great time. So let's talk about now. You ended up um, when we met in in ninety two. Uh, you were you were in in the land claims world, mm -hmm. and um, I'm in the land claims world, and uh, we met we met through those connections. And for me, um, my involvement with First Nations has been in relation to mostly in relation to things that happened in the past, like uh, taking away of land, taking away of uh, of the economy of the First Nations, or failing to observe their rights. And so for me, a lot of uh, my work, and this was the work you were involved in as well, mm -hmm. uh, it, it was trying to understand the, the connection between present-day, you know, First Nations poverty, mm. And, and lack of opportunity and, and the failures of the, of the crown in the past to do the right thing. That uh, over the years, I've certainly become, and through your involvement, and uh, you were for many years uh, on the board of, uh, ending up on, as the chair of the board of Nietzsche Institute, which is dedicated to uh, health and wellness and addiction recovery. Mm -hmm. What do you think is the connection between, you know, the past harm done to First Nations, you know, from the things that lead to land claims and, and the present day addiction trauma that, mm. that seems to plague so many First Nation communities? That's an amazing question because that is the foundation of why First Nations are experiencing such dysfunction right now because the trauma and it didn't just stop. It continues today by colonialism. And being disenfranchised is always something that First Nations are faced with. And I think, you know, and that's why, you know, when I resigned from Nietzsche Institute as their chair last summer, I created a new foundation. And that foundation, I wanted to continue the work that Nietzsche was doing but on a slightly slightly different um, uh, way, I wanted to look at the trauma, the trauma that was ex we experienced through residential schools, through disenfranchisement, through the loss of our land, our culture, our language, because that has impacted who we are today and whether or not we are a success. Or if we are, are, um, into addictions, because addictions is just filling in the gap, the hole that we experience in trauma. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I find, um, oh, I'm not being interviewed here, but <laughs> they all observe that, uh, I work for First Nations uh, in most parts of the country, as you know, mm -hmm. and and I find um, I'm often dealing with, even at the level of leadership, various types of dysfunction. Mm -hmm. um, I'm not naming names, uh, but I'm just saying that um, 
I find that uh, many of the communities that I'm trying to, I'm trying to help them restore their land base, get them compensation for wrongs of the past, and and um, and help them design a better future. As I was just saying, um, even though I don't deal in issues of healing, wellness, and so on directly, I do encounter uh, the issues that are trauma-related that you're describing, even in the leadership and decision-making of, of First Nations. And I think it's I think it's really endemic in so many First Nations that because of the uh, residential school experience, and of course it's multi-generational, uh, so many people are um, are not well. So um, I'm not. That's not a question. But do you have anything to say about that? <laughs> yeah, that's not a question. Um, yeah, and I absolutely agree with you. That's a true statement. Mm-hmm. Okay, let's let's just talk a little bit about the Truth and Reconciliation Commission. I mean, l- let me just say for my part, um, as a person who's been involved in the First Nation world for decades now, there's nothing that's that's come out that's been disclosed that really surprised me. Um, and the calls to action and so on, you know, they make perfect sense. And but I think for the average public, average member of the public, the Truth and Reconciliation Commission and the calls to action made very little impact until a few weeks ago with the discovery of the unmarked graves. And it suddenly has become a matter of intense public concern. What do you think? What do you think is the trigger for that, or what's what's the significance of, of that change? Hmm. Well, I believe that. Well, it's kind of like this. Um, I used to do lecturing at at the university, and like you, most Canadians only learn about Indigenous peoples through a historical perspective, but not, they don't learn anything about residential schools. They don't, even when they hear it, because it didn't happen to them, they don't internalize it. And I think the fact, the news when it broke about the the discovery in unmarked graves, it touched people because people are now thinking these were children. Mm-hmm. And I think that, and most people have children. And as a parent, I know that when anybody is talking about children, you always think of your own children. Mm-hmm. And you think of them as little and and, and helpless. helpless. Yeah. yeah. And so you think, oh, my God, this is really, really horrific. And so I, I think there's a disconnect when people read the TRC report. They didn't tie it to children, you know, and I think that's where people had a had a um, disconnection, you know, um, so. Now we we are totally aware that these young bones are children. Yes. So we can't separate from that fact. Well, they were in the care of of an adult system, mm. and they died, and their remains were never sent home. Yes. We don't know how they all died. No. But the the very fact of putting bodies in an unmarked grave. One of the reactions that I've heard many times in the recent weeks is that this is Canada, that mm. things like this happen in Europe. Mm. In the Holocaust, people get thrown into unmarked graves. But to have unmarked graves mm. in this country, mm. and that's you know goes back to my, you know, my point about as an immigrant to Canada, I, I feel so proud and happy to be in this country. The opportunities that I've had as an individual, you know, my, and our son, 
um, uh, that this is this is a really wonderful place to be, and to have this wonderful country have this stain, mm. uh, and these bodies are the proof. And I think everything else can be. It's almost like Holocaust deniers and residential school deniers. You know, the fact that somebody may have had a positive experience in a residential school, like yourself. Uh, doesn't in any way diminish the horror mm. that this that the system was designed to put. Well, first of all, the wrongheadedness of the of the system of getting rid of Indian language and culture and identity, and then killing children, and then disposing of their bodies in unmarked graves. I mean, this is about the most un-Canadian thing that I can imagine. Mm. <laughs> I agree. I agree. So let's let's talk about the big word of the day. Reconciliation. Yes. What does it mean to you? Well, to me it means as a society we need to reconcile the history with who we want to be today. Okay. I thought you might go on a bit longer. <laughs> <laughs> Um, let me just say, as a lawyer, uh, turn this maybe into a little bit of a, more of a dialogue. As a lawyer, reconciliation has come up in court cases over the last twenty years, um, as the purpose behind the constitutional recognition of Aboriginal and treaty rights. And um, I find there are two. Actually, reconciliation is one of the big words of the day in in my field of law, but the other is honor of the crown, and I. I remember, I remember going back to 1984 when I started. The Guerin case was decided in the Supreme Court, and it was all about the fiduciary duty of the crown. And um, that was the buzzword for 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 a long time. And it was it was an interesting buzzword because it suggested a duty of care uh, that had been breached by the crown. But today we don't talk about that as much. We talk about the honor. Of the crown, and the honor of the crown has to be understood as the honor of the country. The honor of our country is at stake in how we deal Mm -hmm. with the aftermath of this very, very damaging, misguided policy. Mm -hmm. I totally agree with you. In fact, I mean, that's what I, I meant in terms of reconciling the history with who we want to be as a society. We have a decision, Canada right now to decide how we how we address reconciliation in light of the discovery of unmarked graves and it hasn't and it's not going to stop they're still looking so it's going to be coming yeah. up again and again and if an election is called in the next few months it's going to be a topic of discussion mm-hmm. and so for me I think that part of reconciliation, and it's, and it's one reason I decided to do this interview, is every story needs to be told. Mm-hmm. Whether it's a positive story, a horrific story, a negative story, because residential school survivors need to be heard. And I think one of the ways we will be heard is how... Canada decides to move forward in light of this horrific discovery. Mm-hmm. If it goes back to, you know, like we have the Truth and Reconciliation Report, we have the Royal Commission Report in the 90s, all of them made recommendations. Mm-hmm. All of them are sitting I, on shelves. I wrote some of them, as I recall. Yeah, and all of them are sitting on shelves at the moment. People are not looking at an actionable item and how to to move forward. I mean, often the conversation is, it wasn't me. It wasn't my parents that did this. It happened years ago, you know, and so they don't want to take the responsibility. That's a very good point, and let me... Let me... Again, 
offer something. I remember reading parts of the Truth and Reconciliation Report in South Africa, and we were, you know, we were all amazed that the white apartheid government fell and was replaced by a Mandela government peacefully. Mm. Uh, Reverend, or was he a reverend or bishop? Desmond Tutu led the Truth and Reconciliation Commission. And its work <clears throat> was interesting because you had people who had been at war with each other, who had been harming each other, who'd been trying to kill each other in the present, mm. coming before this commission mm. and and letting it, letting their stories speak and then moving beyond it. And But it was in the present or the near past, right? Mm-hmm. And I think what you say about the Canadian TRC is that it's too easy to say, well, this happened generations ago. This happened generations ago. It wasn't my fault. I don't inherit any of this. I don't feel guilt for any of this. Um, but it's not about personal guilt. It's about our country doing the right and honorable thing. And I think it's the discovery of these remains. And you know, none of them have been exhumed yet. I mean, it's just, they're simply shadows on a radar screen. It has somehow made people realize that these, as you said before, these are real children. Mm. They were in the care of adults. They were treated despicably, regardless of how they died, whether they died through disease or uh, they died through abuse. Their bodies were were treated uh, abysmally and, and inhumanely. And I think people respond to that because it's a reality in their world today. So how do we build upon that new sense of realization, maybe guilt, uh, and and what can reconciliation look like going forward with with the public behind the initiative? That is a huge, huge <laughs> question. <laughs> And if I was running for prime minister, <laughs> I'm, I mean, it's a huge, huge question because, you know, I have been approached since the story of, of the residential schools broke and people have come to me and have asked me, what can I do mm-hmm. as an individual? And I lead them to my foundation. <laughs> mm-hmm. If you want to do something, if you want to, you know, um, soothe your consciousness, you know, in a bit, Donate to this foundation because we are creating an action plan that will directly empower communities. Um, so anyway, that's just, I don't know if that answers your question. Well, it's an interesting plug. Yes, it is. <laughs> Shameless. <laughs> Shameless plug. No, but I think, let's, <coughs> pardon me, let's just talk a little bit more about that. Your, your foundation now, you were, uh, as, I, as I mentioned, for many years, many, many years, quarter of a century and more, uh, with uh, Nietzsche Institute, ending up as its chair for a number of years. Um, and, um, you know, I think you, you poured your heart and soul into that work, I know. Um, and I know your commitment to, to healing uh, and uh, dealing with addictions. But your, your perspective has changed in the last couple of years. Let's talk about that a little bit. The, the, the importance of trauma. I don't think I heard you talk about that much until a couple of years ago. Yeah. Yeah. Trauma is something new to me. I mean, it, it's not new to people in the doing work in trauma. I mean, it's been around the work looking at trauma has been around for, you know, 15, 20 years. But and it's similar to, um, um, you know, in the, in the industry of, of addictions, they talk about harm reduction. And unfortunately, you know, while I was at Nietzsche, we didn't look at harm reduction, you know. And, and that surprises me because what Nietzsche was about was abstinence. 100% abstinence. Even to enter into any of the courses, you had to be abstinent for at least a year before taking the courses. So so I don't know why I totally missed 
missed the conversation on trauma and harm reduction back in the day. But a couple years ago, I started doing some research on on trauma through um, Gabor Mate. And it now, made... Gabor, Gabor is a physician, I believe. He spent many years uh, treating probably mostly addicted people on the downtown east side of Vancouver. Yes. A very interesting fellow. Yeah, he's he's really amazing because he's, I think, the one, because of his maybe celebrity status, people tend to to pay attention to him. And so I connected with him and I said, you know, I'm developing these courses and I don't want to have it. I mean, there's whole copyright reasons, but I don't want to develop the same courses that Nietzsche has developed. I want to do something different and I want to take the approach of trauma and looking at trauma and empowering people to look at their own trauma and move, move through their addictions and that recovery in that way. So as I understand, you explained to me that um, his his approach is that addiction is, I'm not sure if it's always, but mostly always, uh, a response to some form of trauma. Is that right? Yes. Yeah. And, and what we're trying to do, I mean, as people, when we experience trauma, it sets our belief system in a certain way. So we, we have this belief, you know, if, if you're a young person, say a lot of the uh, residential school survivors, their experience in, in the mission and residential school is that they feel undervalued. Mm-hmm. They feel not good enough. They feel less than. And that is a direct result from trauma. So, so in this point of view, um, addiction isn't the disease. It's a symptom of trauma, and you have to deal with the trauma yeah. if you hope to be successful dealing with the addiction. Yes, okay. yeah. or understanding it. Understanding it, right. it. okay. Yeah. So, so if you're just demanding that people are abstinent and you're not dealing with the underlying cause, mm-hmm. um, your failure rate is going to be fairly high, I yeah. guess. Yeah, well, I mean... There's, there's no um, secret that that it doesn't work. Yeah. I mean, how many times do people have to go into treatment centers? Mm-hmm. I mean, some of them go back. I know a, a a friend of mine. He said, you know, in his family, people have gone into treatment seven, eight, nine, ten times, mm-hmm. and still end up back on their addiction. Well, that's just. I'll comment on my world, my world of dealing with land claims. Um, this rings very true to me because the very much it's very true that the First Nations I work with usually have some historical trauma that the community itself has suffered. And there's a myth built around that trauma. And the myth is some form of loss. It's not a myth, it's a true, but, but people live with a sense of loss and then they develop a, a sense of um, of sort of defensive superiority because of something that distorts their view of the world and where they are. And it's and it's all on it's all rather unhealthy. Mm-hmm. So it's um it's it's a historic trauma and it's a it's a community wide trauma in many cases that is an obstacle to moving ahead in a healthy way. Well, it's an intergenerational trauma, and yeah. I think when it when it isn't addressed, then you pass it down to your children mm-hmm. and grandchildren, and it and the circle is never broken until you heal yourself. And in he- healing yourself, I mean in addressing the trauma, mm-hmm. the original trauma. Well, I know that in your own family. Um, which is a very large family, and um, we we can see that pattern repeating in the generations that have followed your generation. That mm-hmm. so many of so many of the members of your family are have inherited um, the trauma of even though they didn't go to residential school themselves, their parents or grandparents did. Mm. Is that 
Do you think that's right? I have to think about that a little bit. I mean, in some regards, it's right. And so as I'm thinking, I'm thinking of my my nieces and nephews. And and so then I'm thinking, okay, so from our my brothers and sisters to their nieces, uh, to their children. Um, yeah, I don't, it's, I, I'm finding it really hard to, to answer that. Okay. That's a, yeah. it's probably not a fair question. Yeah. Um, so, uh, I guess, I guess our time is just about up. Um, and, uh, I want to, I want to thank you for this, uh, conversation <laughs> and, um, is there any any parting words that you'd like to to give to to sort of wrap this up? It's been a fairly wide ranging discussion, yeah, touching on some very important and very personal matters. Yes, yeah, very personal. And thank you, Alan, for interviewing me because I, I, you know, I I've wanted for so long to tell my story, but it's much better telling it in the framework of questions, mm-hmm. right? dotted with stories you know because people will connect with that and i really appreciate getting this opportunity to do this um when i what i want to leave with as in everything i do i try to leave bits of wisdom you know how did i become so positive you know i've experienced different types of tragedies over the year but I choose to always look at it in a positive light. I always want to see what can I learn from this situation that will move me forward, you know, so so that it's either am I growing and learning or am I being stagnant? And so with that in mind, I I hope that the discussion, this conversation actually helps people deal with their own stories and maybe have a different perspective. My very first day at, at the mission, I choose to look at it as a positive because I'm innately a positive person, you know, so I'm always wanting to look at the positive side. So, and I think that that colored the rest of my experience for the next seven years at residential schools, I looked at the positive. You know, I mean, I, I talk about the movies we had on Sunday night. I talk about the music, the Beatles playing in the, in the summer months. So I'm, I'm looking at the positive things that, that I experienced. I mean, often we as people will emphasize the negative. It's a human nature thing. We'll look at the negative side of things and not the positive side. But I look at the positive because that's what makes me happy. And I'm hoping when people listen to this podcast, they might look at some of their positive experiences, some of the relationships they built with other classmates and people in in residential school, look at the the relationships they built with with teachers. Like I remember one time when I was at the University of Alberta, I was waiting for a bus. It was cold. Seems like all my stories are about cold winter days, but that's that's, <laughs> that's <Alberta> Canada. <laughs> that's Canada and Alberta. So I was I was kind of freezing and it was kind of cold, and and this guy walked up and. He stopped right in front of me. Enough, you know, somebody stands in front of me. I'll smile. <laughs> so I smiled. And he said, Duranger, right? And I said, yeah, how did you know? Dimples. Yeah. <laughs> he says, your smile. I recognize your smile anywhere. And it was Mr. Peters, who was a teacher at Bishop Pichet. Uh, so, you know, like, I must have had an impression on him, maybe if it it was just my smile, but it was, I made an impression. And so you never know who you make an impression on. And so look for those positive times in your life where somebody made you smile. Somebody made you laugh because in those moments are gems of 
strength. And it could, I mean, you know, when we look at Indigenous people, and I'm speaking mostly of my family, and I'm, I'm certain most Indigenous people have this, but at funerals, you're going to hear laughter. Yes. As people are telling stories, there's going to be laughter in there. And so I want to just leave just with that thought. Acknowledge the laughter in your life. Acknowledge the positive that you experience. Don't gloss over it. Just take a moment and look for them. Look for those gems because those gems are what will give you strength in times of challenge. And that's that's where I'm going to leave off. Well, thank you so very much for your time. Um, it has been my honor and privilege to be the guest interviewer of this edition of Empathetic Witness. I'm going to surrender the job and give it back to you. Until uh, next time, this is the Empathetic Witness Podcast. Uh, thank you so much. I just want to say you're a great interviewer. <laughs> <laughs> I felt a little bit cross-examined, well, but... <laughs> you're, a, you're a darn good subject. Okay. Thanks, and uh, I'll say goodbye.